When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and every week the team and I will be bringing you an exciting mix of discussion, interviews and stories. This week we discuss our Len McCluskey interview in which the Unite leader warns Ed Miliband against seduction by the Blairites. I ask whether tattoos will ever hang in the Louvre. We talk spring books with our culture editor Jonathan Derbyshire, hear about America from our US writer Nikki Wolf, and we follow up on the role that Reddit played in the hunt for the Boston Bombers. joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and the editor of The Staggers, George Eaton, to talk about the week in politics. We're going to start off with the fact that, George, you um, interviewed Len McCluskey of Unite, the union, who provide 28% of Labour's funding, and he had some fairly harsh words for the Blairites in the Cabinet. He named uh, Jim Murphy, Liam Byrne and Douglas Alexander. What have they done to annoy him? Well, I think his, his concern is that they will take Labour uh, into a position that he, he defines as austerity light where they either match the uh, uh, spending cuts the Tories are planning after the next election or um, or introduce significant cuts of their own. Um, it was very it was a very significant move for him to widen his attack on the on the Blairites. It's not it's not the first time he's attacked uh, that wing of the party, but to start naming members of the shadow cabinet personally and, and basically saying to Ed Miliband, either you should ignore these guys or you should sack them. Um, was was quite a bold move uh, for him to make. And I think that's why Ed Miliband has come out so strongly and used the word reprehensible, which um, for a mild chap like Miliband is fairly It was quite a smackdown, language. wasn't it? Were you surprised by how much, how kind of aggressive that, that comeback was? I, I was surprised because I think Len is not someone that Ed can easily dismiss out of hand because, as you said, that it's the party's biggest donor... Uh, he wouldn't have won the leadership without the support of unions like Unite, uh, the party members and, and the uh, PLP voted for David. Um, but I think the reason he felt it was necessary is because he couldn't be seen to tolerate um, a, a trade union leader basically calling him for him to, to sack uh, members of his shadow cabinet. I guess he feels he can't afford that any kind of whisper of red ed or any of that can kind of come back. Exactly. And the, the Blairites are increasingly anxious about their position in the party and this was a signal for Miliband there are lines I will not allow the unions to cross and um, although I, I, he may have he has I may have disagreements of his own with some of these figures um, he's not prepared for them to just be uh, sort of spat on by the Labour left. 
And Rath, there's been a lot of unsolicited advice for Ed Miliband in the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of it delivered in the pages of New Statesman, for example, Tony Blair's uh, intervention in the centenary issue. How much of it are they listening to? I think um, now, Ed Mil you mean Ed Miliband's office, mm -hmm. I think they're taking it uh, pretty seriously uh, because they're not unaware that you know, deep down their poll lead is based heavily on the coalition government getting things wrong. Uh, and I mean, there is ultimately the direction of the party is driven by Ed Miliband's core analysis and his belief in what he thinks needs to be done. Um, but there's only so far that can take them. They still need shadow ministers to come up with you know, things to do in, in health, what a one nation health policy, what a one nation justice policy, what a one nation welfare policy would look like. And George is absolutely right. If, if the impression is given that you know, Ed Miliband is essentially front of house, but really Len McCluskey is calling the shots. It's properly damaging um, for for the Labour Party. I think also that something that's going on in the background here, which is worth considering, is that since David Miliband essentially retired from frontline politics, said he was leaving Parliament, um, him being there, although it was sort of awkward and inconvenient for Ed, uh, it was also, there was a sort of brittle fixedness to the situation that, that meant that um, uh, Blairites weren't coming out too hard uh, attacking Ed, partly out of sort of loyalty to David in a way. I mean, Ed was still his brother. They didn't want to cause trouble for David. Um, but also uh, presumably the idea they didn't want to kind of feed any king across the wall. Exactly. And so that, that there was a sort of a lid on some of this stuff on, on the right of the party. Um, but also now that David's gone, there's a feeling around that some of the people on the left of the party uh, and also some of the people who were sort of the team Gordon back in the old Vendetta feud days are thinking right well that's the sort of one leading in quotes Blairite out of the picture now maybe we can just get rid of all of them not physically dispatch them but really kind of take away Blairism at the knees uh, and a lot of people in the parliamentary party are very worried about this the sense that behind the scenes there's a stitch up going on which is essentially trying to snuff out that whole way of thinking um, in the Labour Party whether it's progress the, the sort of Groupuscule that, that does a lot of Blairish thinking, all these things. And so I think that anxiety is now filtered up to Ed Miliband. He realises that this looks like a kind of purge mm. uh, of the right and it, that smells terrible to people who think Labour should be about plural politics. And that's why he came out very hard and slapped it down yesterday. Which leads us nicely into the news we've had uh, about the, the Tory policy unit. So Joe Johnson, the younger brother of London Mayor Boris Johnson, is going in as the head of that, along with some more new young intake is that reflective of a, of a shift in thinking in, in the Tory party? I think it's uh, acknowledgement by Cameron that uh, the number 10 operation has been up to scratch. So since the coalition came to power, that policy unit has been headed by a civil servant rather than a political appointee. Um, and Cameron recognises now that's something he's had to address. And by bringing in... Um, also, people like, uh, like Jesse Norman, it's a signal that... Um, he, rather than uh, dismissing um, his, his backbenchers in the way he has sometimes appeared to do, he needs to, um, to actually work with them. And I, and I think there's a sense as well that he's uh, capitalising on the, uh, the unity that has emerged among the Tories since, uh, since the death of Thatcher. Mm. Um, it's quite a comeback for Jesse Norman, isn't it, who was sent to Siberia slightly last, last year. Yeah, after leading the Lords Revolt. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I think is quite remarkable. You couldn't have had someone who was more explicitly banished and sent out and told never to come back because he basically ran a, a parallel alternative rival whipping operation to the government one over Lord's reform. Uh, and he had a, a stand-up row with the Prime Minister about it afterwards. 
so to to be told you're you're sort of back in the fold that is a that is a serious control out delete moment in terms of David Cameron's relations with his parliamentary party. And what do we know about Joe Johnson? He was an FT journalist and has as his pro anti Europe closet Euro- closet pro European. I mean, essentially, is my understanding. I mean, pro Europeanism was described to me by one. Um, Conservative MP is to sort of the love that Daniel speak his name in the parliamentary party, and right. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't claim to know Joe Johnson's mind exactly on this, but someone again, someone who had to remain anonymous, who um, is pro-European uh, and a serious figure at Westminster, said t- said me, told me of Joe Johnson. Um, uh, he's eminently sensible. He gets it. Now that this accolade coming from this particular person is not something Tory Eurosceptics want to hear, so that could be an issue. And the other thing to mention probably is that he's another old Etonian. So so is Jesse Norman. So <laughs> so that would be, be a sort of little school reunion for them, that which is lovely. Um, and we talked a little bit earlier before we came on air about Linton Crosby and his effect on the on Tory strategy. And I wonder if Raph, if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Linton. Um, there, there is the Labour view is that this is a terrible mistake. Linton Crosby is a sort of deranged right wing fanatic, and he'll lead them off into the sort of wilderness march of nasty party rhetoric I think that's a misjudgment uh, Crosby is there to win he won't just rerun the 2005 general election campaign because that lost and he makes his money by winning campaigns and he will have learned the lessons from that and he will take a lot of message dictation from Cameron and, and, and Osborne up to a point crucially what Crosby's arrival has done is given Tory MPs the feeling that there's someone in number 10 who actually really wants to win this thing because as George was saying there was a feeling that the number 10 machine it was full of these sort of flimsy civil servants who are just passing through and Cameron's posh chums who are sort of preening themselves at playing at statecraft and actually what you need is someone who just wakes up in the morning thinking how can I screw Labour and that person is Linton Crosby. And finally GDP figures plus 0.3% George George Osborne great chancellor or the greatest chancellor? <laughs> it is good for Osborne uh, a, a, a triple dip um, would have been uh, very very embarrassing, would have made it a lot easier for Labour. This means that growth, however anemic, and it's worth pointing out it was uh, 0.2% above the forecast, which is uh, also helps him, allows him to maintain this narrative that the economy is healing. And the hope among the Tories, the fear among Labour, is, is that if you now have a sustained period of growth until the election, and it's possible that you will, then that will look like an achievement compared to the years that we've had and uh, the Tories will go to the country in 2015 and say, look, we've got the economy growing again, we've got the deficit down, yes, it hasn't come down as far as we'd like, but who do you want to finish the job? Stick with us. And actually, that's what um, McCluskey was saying to me. He he feels if Labour doesn't offer a real alternative, then that message from the Tories will start to look very appealing. And this is where Ed Miliband's going to have to make a, a huge judgment on, on what he does on spending. Um, does he match the coalition's plans? If he outlines his own alternative, um, what cuts does he make, if any? Um, And the GDP figure is only going to sharpen that debate. Thank you, George, and thank you, Ralph. In this week's magazine, I've written a very long essay, as it happens, about the art history of tattoos, uh, asking the question, will a tattoo ever hang in the Louvre? And one of the things I've done in that is talk to two academics who study tattoos. One of them is Gemma Angel, who is researching um, a collection of 19th and 20th century skins that are kept by the Wellcome Collection. The other is Matt Lodder, who has a PhD from the University of Reading about body modification as artistic practice. Earlier, I spoke to him about whether tattoos can be art. So, Matt, first of all, if you could tell me 
What does a tattoo art historian do? Well, there's a few of us around the world, probably um, a good kind of cabal of about 10 of us. And what we're all trying to do really is reboot the historical record, really. There's lots of terrible things in the past hundred or so years on, on tattooing. Um, and so we're really, most of us going back to primary sources, hunting around in archives, chatting to artists, looking at private collections, reassessing all of the um, uh, historical material, and really trying to rewrite this history um, right away from the, um, uh, you know, from, from the prehistoric times to the present day, rather than relying on uh, all the myths and misconceptions and misunderstandings that have really crept into and I'm afraid that, yeah, it turns out that I've been guilty of perpetuating one of those myths. So since we spoke, we found out, you found out that um, Jenny Churchill, Winston Churchill's mother, didn't, in fact, have a, a, a dragon or snake round her wrist. That's right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, this is one of those myths that um, was sort of about as solid as it gets in terms of the um, contemporary documentation. It's in all of the, uh, it's in lots and lots of tabloid reports at the end of the 19th century. Um, so we have a you know, good primary source resource material from the time that she was living with. They very quickly had little drawings and um, of her tattoo around her wrist and stories how she got it and stuff. And so that's pretty much been an accepted fact um, uh, in, in my field a long time. But um, a, a historian called Amelia Clem Osterud, who works in Milwaukee, and he wrote a really good book on tattooed women, um, has, was just all bothered by this. She didn't question any primary evidence. Mm. So she went looking for pictures of Jenny. She went looking for um, uh, her archives and her letters mentioned in um, her accounts, and nothing seems to ever pop up. And every single photo of her when she was younger, she either had some jewellery over her wrist, and this is often part of the myth that Jenny would cover her tattoo um, it went into like company with some kind of jewellery. And in, in all these pictures, she had an arms or she had jewellery over her wrist. And so and it was really hard to see. And um, Amelia spent hours and hours and hours looking at photos and eventually she found a high-res decent copy of a uh, photograph of Jenny in her later life when she was an old lady with both of her wrists exposed and completely bare of any tattoo at all. So um, this you know, even sort of one of the most well-known uh, facts, so to speak, of tattoo history um, and not true. I mean, she may well have been tattooed, but if she was, it certainly wasn't on her are you, are you still confident about um, the future Tsar Nicholas II and the future George V going off to China on a sort of gap year? Yeah, absolutely. So George, George V we know because it's in um, his own account. Um, it's, and it's also in his period. Um, uh, one of his uh, attendants, and hand, you know, hand, uh, man servants, so to speak. Um, so we have, we have primary evidence and Nicholas as well. Um, so that, that's one of the ones that we can trace back. Uh, and the same is true of, of Edward VII. We know that Edward VII, from his own writing, was definitely tattooed in Jerusalem in 1862. Um, although there are lots of stories being tattooed after that, being tattooed in London, lots of London tattoo artists in the 19th century um, advertised that they'd, tattooed, they'd um, been the personal tattoo artist to the king. And actually, um, we can't find any primary evidence of him ever actually having any more tattoos after 1862. Although, again, those myths kind of and to bring it up to the present day, who, in your opinion, are the most kind of in the artistic tradition? Who are the most artistically interesting tattooists working today? Oh, there's so many. I mean, it depends on what you what you call artistic. Whether you, you know whether we're talking kind of virtuosity and skill, an incredible um, artist who like um, 
a guy called Nico, for example, or Mike Davis, who so works in America, who do very, very detailed, photorealistic portraits. Um, there are kind of really interesting conceptual tattooers, and someone like Amanda Watchob in Montreal, who does also kind of Jack expressionist or kind of um, brushstroke tattooing. There's loads of kind of really strange, surrealist tattoos coming out from someone like Ron Henry Wall. And I should probably at this point um, uh, give a fairly decent plug for your blog, which is fantastic, which is mattlodder.tumblr.com. Um, uh, yeah, I, I do try and post a lot of stuff that I come across, yeah. And I've seen some great vintage photos on there and other stuff. Um, thank you, Matt, for talking to us. It's been really interesting, and, and thanks for appearing. Nikki Wolf, who's been blogging for the New Statesman from America, although he's now over here in Britain with us. Hi. Hello. Um, you spent the election campaign in the metro- bustling metropolis of uh, Hicksville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And what? So, what was the idea behind that? Um, it was to because Ohio was the the crucible of the election. Um, the whole thing was was predicted to be decided by Ohio. Um, the electoral uh, math, just kind of the electoral math, as they say, was. Uh, pretty much brought it down to Ohio and it did in the end come down to Ohio so the when Ohio got called the election got called that was the the way it um the way it went but I wanted to go rather than somewhere like Columbus or or one of the industrial towns I wanted to go somewhere a bit more out in the sticks and see what real Ohioans um with bunny ears um were were thinking of the election but in fact actually Hicksville is quite a um middle class quite developed town people were quite wealthy they did Find wine tastings and things like that. So it but they wasn't were also extremely bored of the election, weren't they? Because they oh, yeah. got hammered with TV ads, with billboard ads, everything. I, I had some friends out there um, who I met, and I went for dinner at theirs a few times. And during one dinner, just during dinner, they received five auto calls from various political parties, so the kind of the main ones, and then the sort of pressure groups and super PACs and everything. And they just get. You know, at one point, he just picked up the phone, put it on speaker, and it said. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is the most important election in a generation. It just sort of slams the phone down. Like, this is ridiculous. They can't watch television because every ad break is co- like constantly... Um, political attack ads all the way through it just becomes un, unwatchable and you mentioned super PACs there which is still something that's only slight on the edge of I guess our consciousness in, in Britain and I just wonder if you can kind of explain a little bit more about the relevance of them in that election super PAC came out of a um, piece of legislation called Citizens United um, which is badly badly misnamed because effectively what it means is that big American money um, and a lot of these the, you've heard of the Koch brothers and mm. the um, so they're the kind of Tea Party um, funders, Carl, basically. Yeah, would can put up money to run um, ads in an in a political election without uh, it being known to anyone, without having to reveal where the money is coming from. So there are these huge, mysteriously funded groups. Carl Rove's is one of the biggest, and it's known that Carl Rove runs it, but it's still not really known where a whole load of his money is coming from. People can vaguely work it out, but they no one has to. Um, has to say anything. So essentially, about you give money. your money to the super PAC, and then the super PAC happens to spend it on campaigning for a yeah. for a candidate. 
I think um, Stephen Colbert, the satirist who used to be on The Daily Show, had one that's sort of... He started like, this even like, yeah. Better to building a better tomorrow tomorrow or yeah. something like that. Um, and then to bring it a little bit up to date, uh, we were talking earlier about immigration reform being the kind of big debate. And um, so John McCain has been trying to push this legislation for decades now. So what, what's happened with that now? Uh, John McCain is, is the senator from Arizona, and his Arizona local party... Um, I mean, it's wrong to say constituency because it's Arizona, it's huge, but it's um, put through legislation basically saying that anyone uh, Latino-looking could be stopped on the street and have their immigration papers checked. And obviously the entire Latino uh, population of Arizona has been up in arms about this. And it's turned Arizona from a pretty solid Republican state into one that's very much up in the air. It still in the end went Republican in the last election, but there's no guarantee that it will in the next one as the Latino population grows and as kind of anger grows in that community. So McCain, being reasonably wise as a politician, is only someone who's lost like he has can be, mm. um, has suddenly realised that, look, we've really got to do something about this. And that's kind of the same story that you wrote about for the magazine about Texas, yeah. about the, the kind of the rise of the Hispanic vote, how that's really changed the electoral mass, because you've got a constituency that generally tends to have been quite socially conservative, mm -hmm. but has been so alienated by the incredibly hard line the Republicans have taken mm -hmm. on immigration. And you made a kind of confident prediction that this was going to, this could completely screw the Republican Party, yeah. unless they, they tackle it. Almost to the point where... Because Obama is now getting on top of the immigration reform, so if he looks like the one who's putting through immigration reform, that's about the last chance the Republicans have to redeem themselves. So really, it's 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 it sounds counterintuitive because it's Texas, it's kind of gung ho, it's you know yeehaw, but it's really not. And the, the demographics mean it'll be majority Latino by, um, depending on if there's zero net immigration, it'll be majority Latino anyway, just by um, changing rate. birth rates by twenty thirty. It'll be even sooner than that by uh, if migration continues at the rate it's been. And if migration continues to increase, it'll be even sooner still. That won't translate into politics quite so quickly because that generation has to turn 18. When it does, it is pretty much game over. I mean, that's, that's it for the Republicans, basically. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Hi, my name's Philip Moore joined by Jonathan Derbyshire, the culture editor of the New Statesman. Hi Jonathan. Hi Phil. We're going to talk about our Spring Books special, which this week in the magazine kicks off with a review by John Gray of a collection of philosophical essays by Fernando Pessoa, who I was not really familiar with before reading this essay. How, how did it come about, Jonathan? Uh the implication of your question, Phil, is that it's not the most obvious choice for the lead book review in our spring book special, and I would uh, cop to that. <laughs> um, this was actually uh, a suggestion of John himself. Um, Pessoa, as some listeners may know, was a Portuguese poet mm. and writer who wrote under a dizzying number of uh, pseudonyms. Um, and this collection, Philosophical Essays, a critical edition, is the first um, complete edition of Pessoa's uh, prose writing. Um, and it's very clear that, from John's review, that he sees in Pessoa a kindred spirit, mm. um, particularly in Pessoa's uh, indifference to the canons and procedures of normal academic philosophy. There's a lovely remark um, towards the end of John's review, where he draws a distinction between the way academic philosophy proceeds today, that's to say, um, 
by trying to persuade uh, readers of a, a set of premises or a set of uh, a set of beliefs. Um, Pessoa, John says, is something else. Far from trying to persuade anyone of any set of convictions, he used philosophy to liberate the mind from belief. Mm. And it, his, he sounds quite astonishing because when you hear the sort of biographical detail, his life sounds utterly uneventful. And it seems almost that, that out of that, he kind of, you know, he, he has this, I don't know, this this kind of fractured inner life. You know, he creates yep. these uh, heteronyms, he calls them, yep. his, his fractured selves. It sounds astonishing. Uh, yeah, the work is um, both in poetry and in and in philosophical prose is an mm. exploration of the of this the fractured nature of the fractured nature of the self. And I think Pessoa ended up with a view of selfhood um, not unlike that of uh, the great Scottish philosopher David Hume, for example, who thought there was no mm. such thing as a stable metaphysical entity called the self, but rather the self was simply a bundle of perceptions. And I think Pessoa, and I'm not entirely sure whether he was familiar with Hume's work, ended mm. up um, holding to a very similar position. Yeah, a writer for our for our times Indeed. in a strange sort of a way. Another a very important book that's uh, coming out this week is John Le Carre's new novel, A Delicate Truth, which has been reviewed by Sarah Churchwell for us. Yes, and uh, Sarah gives the uh, book a somewhat ambivalent mm. uh, reception, and I think her in her review is very interesting for the way she charts the mutations in. Uh, Le Carre's work over the course of his career. Now he's best known and indeed owes his reputation to the spy thrillers that he wrote during the Cold War. And Sarah makes a very interesting observation, which is that although those books were written at a time of um, intense ideological polarisation, they nevertheless were characterised and shaped by um, a deep degree of moral ambiguity. Mm. Um, whereas after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, Le Carre's fiction has begun to traffic, um, oddly, in uh, a kind of um, moral absolutism, if you like. The moral, ambigu moral ambiguity has disappeared. I think Sarah is arguing so has some of the, the charm and interest of uh, Le Carre's fiction. Yes, and a kind of a sort of m marginal kind of patriotism almost seems to yep. be emerging. Um, she sort of picks apart um, a, a large uh, section um, from the novel, his kind of Merry England moment almost. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's particularly striking. And in other of his more recent novels, that patriotism has been, uh, has come out as a kind of curdled anti-Americanism, yeah. um, which is not to say that... Um, the novel is completely without interest because uh, I think um, any Le Carre novel is going to have some interest. And she does conclude um, that the final paragraph um, of the book, the uh, gist of which she doesn't give away, naturally, mm. um, alone makes, uh, she writes, a delicate truth worth reading, not only for the obvious pleasures to be offered by a master of suspense, but for the brutal truth he forces her to confront at the story's end. So he rem um, the Bottom line is that Le Carre, for all all the faults of his recent fiction, remains a master of mm. suspense. Absolutely. In your bookshops this weekend and probably on uh, your cinema screens in about a year's time, I would imagine. Yep. Um, Shakespeare. Um, there are a great many pretenders to the crown. Right. Um, Jonathan Bate has written about this new book. I've heard a lot of buzz about this book. Um, we're all familiar with sort of, you know, uh, the... Um, the, the conspiracy theories, you know, that the Earl of Oxford, of course, is mm. uh, is said to be uh, penned them in, in uh, Roland Emmerich's film Anonymous, yeah. which came out last year. Um, it, it's a great review. It kind of uh, 
it helps along the argument of the book, I think. Um, it's a Dr. Johnson-style refutation, um, as Johnson famously refuted the idealism of uh, Bishop Berkeley. It's a Dr. Johnson-style refutation, demolition, in fact, mm. of conspiracy theories about the authorship of Shakespeare's plays. Now, the book itself is edited by Paul Edmondson and Stanley Wells. It's called Shakespeare Beyond Doubt. Mm. And it's a series of essays which assembles more or less, if you believe Jonathan Bate at least, more or less irrefutable evidence that Shakespeare was in fact really Shakespeare. Um, and one particularly interesting aspect to me of uh, Jonathan Bate's review, and listeners will know that Bate is a leading expert on um, yeah. Shakespeare's plays and indeed um, Tudor literary history more generally, um, Bate points out that a prominent anti-Stratfordian, and by anti-Stratfordian we mean someone who thinks that Shakespeare was not the author of the plays normally attributed to him, um, we discover, according to Bate, that a prominent anti-Stratfordian once shared a platform with David Irving, uh, the Holocaust denier, at a so-called revisionist historical conference. And that's that's a rather unsettling confluence of two forms of conspiracy theory. It certainly is. Um, and there's a line in the review which any reading I've done into this in the past is, is kind of where I've... I've come down on this argument uh, uh, as well. Bate writes, it all boils down to snobbery, the conviction that genius could not have come from a lowly place. Um, and I think we'd probably leave that one at there. What, yeah. what are your other highlights uh, in books this week? Um, Simon Heffer has reviewed Roger Hermiston's uh, book about the um, spy George Blake, who was convicted in the early 1960s and, and sentenced to 42 years for betrayal of his country. Uh, Claire Loudon, who's um, a very interesting new um, and young literary critic who started writing for the New Statesman recently, reviews Tessa Hadley's new novel, Clever Girl. Mm. Um, Andrew Adonis reviews Michael Waterhouse's biography of Sir Edward Grey, who was the disastrous and inept British Foreign Secretary at the time of the outbreak of the First World War. And I've interviewed the Chilean author Isabel Allende about her new novel, Maya's Notebook. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm joined by Alex Hearn, our resident young person's internet social media correspondent, to talk about the second biggest social media story of the week after me leaving Twitter, uh, which was Reddit's, um, I think you described it as Reddit's racist where's Wally in trying to attempt to find the, um, the two bombers who caused such carnage at the Boston Marathon. So first of all, can you just tell us what happened? Um, how did Reddit get involved in this case? Well, basically, I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Boston Marathon bombing, well, one of, one of the things is that there were a huge number of photographs of the marathon of, of the you know the scene before and after the explosions went off which means that the bombers were inevitably caught on film um and someone at reddit had the smart idea of setting up the uh find boston bombers subreddit where the enormous community at reddit would pour over the pictures and try and find the boston bombers and help the police and catch them early and the problem is of course that reddit didn't really know anything about the boston bombers um, they didn't know what they looked like. They didn't know what the explosives looked like. So they just had to go on profiling. And what you saw in the first first few days of it was a huge number of people picking out people with brown skin and backpacks. Mm. Just going on, you know, going on what is the standard profile of people who have bombed Western countries in the last 10 years. But, but the most being... of the people they picked had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah. One, pair, one pair of people, is, it's impossible to know whether the chain started at Reddit or not. But one pair of men were Moroccan-American runners who were at the marathon because they're runners, uh, and they ended up on the front page of the New York Post. 
which was one of an absolutely incredible kind of old. I mean, the story has been re represented as being very much about the lack of verification on mm -hmm. new media, but that shows you that there can be a similar approach from old media. Right, as well. and I mean, actually, to Reddit's credit, by the time it ended up in the New York Post, Reddit was certain that it wasn't that those two guys had nothing to do with it. Reddit had done their stalking, found their Facebook pages. They they were runners. They were pretty clearly there for legitimate reasons. But one of the saddest things was the uh, the kind of monstering of a of an Indian student, originally right. Indian American student at Princeton called Sunil Tripathi, who, as I understand it, a, a body's been found in a river that they think might be his. But there were days when it was suggested that because he'd gone missing this was suspicious and people left comments on his yeah. family's tribute Facebook page. Not days, it was it was actually as with all of these things moved so incredibly fast. It right. was it was about twelve hours. But those twelve hours caused a lot of damage. Um someone had shortly after the FBI released photos of the Bombers. Someone had pointed out that they look a bit like one of them looked a bit like Sunil Tripathi. Um, and then again, we don't know what the possible mechanism is, but Sunil Tripathi's name came up on the Boston police scanner. Um, and Which I still think is probably because someone on the Boston police department reads Reddit. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is the thing. Tens I mean, of the, thousands the, of people do. The scanner is there just where police talk about everything that is possible it's it's not verified in any way and the interesting thing being that in america it's legal to listen to a police scanner whereas it's illegal in it Britain. is so you get this sort of thing and then of course when when it was reported that his name came up on the scanner reddit did a post saying reddit's found the boston bomber linked back to the earlier one made it on front again i say reddit someone on reddit reddit upvoted it um with the reddit community and but what's yeah. quite unprecedented here is that there was a there was a, an apology on Reddit. Yeah, this is the interesting thing. Not just an apology on Reddit. The the moderator of the Boston Bomber, the fine Boston Bombers subreddit, apologised. But actually, Reddit's general manager apologised, which is kind of unprecedented for them because, of course, the Reddit corporation that runs it uh, likes to emphasise the fact that it is community driven. It's a very they're very hands off. It's all very libertarian. So apologising for it is kind of a sign of maturity. It's it's Reddit has grown up a bit and accepted that Reddit the company has some responsibility for what goes on in Reddit the community. Well, I would say that, but I, uh, funnily enough, from, from a link yesterday that somebody sent me, I went to Reddit's r slash um, beating women subreddit where people post pictures of women being hit and and not consensually. This isn't a yes. kind of SM thing. This is a this is a people inflicting un, you know, unconsensual violence on women. And yet Reddit's approach to that is, hey... Still, still very libertarian. It's our community has set this up. And, I mean, part of this might just be, you know, the, the Reddit general manager, the Reddit business side of the company is, is, you know, Silicon Valley, young white men who can see things like the direct harm caused by falsely labelling someone a terrorist but can't see the indirect harm caused by spreading attitudes of hatred against women. Mm. But... Yeah, you know, if you start apologising for things that the community has done, you have to start apologising for everything the community has done. And r slash beating women is one of them. Yeah, I find it absolutely horrific. That, and, and owned by Condé Nast, right? Owned by the company that owns Condé Nast. Yeah, there's so, one further step of disaggregation. So it's days. not kind of, this is the thing, I think there's this feeling that Reddit is this in a crazy wild west that's got nothing to do. But it's, it's, it's a, not. It's, it's a, a business. massive internet company. It is and a, some of their money comes from hosting r slash beating women. Yeah, I've, anyway. So we'll, I'm sure we'll talk at length about Reddit because I find <laughs> it a very fascinating community. Alex Hen, thank you very much. Thank you, Helen. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Baer, Caroline Crampton, Jonathan Derbyshire, George Eaton, Alex Hearn, Philip Morn, and Nikki Wall. 
It was produced by Yozushi, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.